This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. Still in Acts, will be for some time. The book of Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to cover the entire chapter today, so we moved a little bit slowly. Uh, had multiple sermons on chapters 1 and 2. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 today uh, in, a, in a single message. And as we do, I wanted to read you something. I don't normally read from a commentary to you, but I couldn't say this as well as he did. So I'm just going to read, you, be, read this to you because what's happening in chapter 3 is that we are entering a new season for the brand new church. And if you'll recall, last week, if you were here, we covered chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 in what is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. I mean, it is an exciting passage of Scripture about all the wonderful things God is doing in His church. I mean, it's nothing short of glorious. It's this high vision of what God does in His church. In chapter 3, chapter 3 is still still relatively exciting time, but it shifts right at the beginning of 4. And uh, chapters 3 through 6... We're entering a new season, chapter 3 through 6, a new section, and there is a different tone in what occurs in the church. And this is how John Stott writes about chapters 3 through 6. So this is his introduction into uh, the uh, section that we're entering, coming off of chapter 2. He says, Luke has painted an idyllic picture of the early Christian community in Jerusalem, Its members, having received forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, were conscientious in their learning from the apostles, their worship of God, their care of one another, and their witness to those yet outside their fellowship. Everything was sweetness and light. Love, joy, and peace reigned. Commissioned by Christ and empowered by His Spirit, they stood on the threshold of the great missionary adventure which Luke is going to describe. The good ship, Christ Church, was ready to catch the wind of the Spirit and set sail on her voyage of spiritual conquest. But almost immediately, a perilous storm blew up. A storm of such ferocity that the church's very existence was threatened. Alternatively, we might say that if the chief actor in the story of Acts 1 and 2 is the Holy Spirit, the chief actor in Acts 3 through 6 almost seems to be Satan. True, he is identified only once by name, but his activity may be discerned throughout. For a full understanding of the early church, we need to read the Acts of the Apostles and the book of Revelation side by side. Both tell much the same tale of the church and its experience of conflict, but from a different perspective. Luke, in the Acts, chronicles what unfolds on the stage of history before the eyes of observers. John, in the Revelation, enables us to see the hidden forces at work. In the Acts, human beings oppose and undermine the church. In the Revelation, the curtain is lifted and we see the hostility of the devil himself, depicted as an enormous red dragon, aided and abetted by two grotesque monsters and a lewd prostitute. Indeed, the Revelation is a vision of an age-long battle between the Lamb and the dragon, Christ and Satan, Jerusalem, the holy city, and Babylon, the great city, the church, and the world. Moreover, it can hardly be a coincidence that the symbolism of the dragon's three allies in Revelation correspond to the devil's three weapons wielded against the church in the early chapters of the Acts. That is persecution, moral compromise, and the danger of exposure to false teaching when the apostles became distracted from their chief responsibility, namely the ministry of the word and prayer. So we start out in this idyllic harbor, ready to launch off into gospel mission, and no sooner do they begin that than there is strong opposition by the devil himself, ultimately. And so let's begin chapter 3, which won't talk a lot about this until next week, but I'm going to give you a taste by reading the first few verses of chapter 4. 
Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be at And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And then we'll read the next few verses, which we'll look at next week. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your healing power, your miraculous healing power. We thank you for the miracle we read about here. And we thank you for the greater miracle we read about here too, that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and reigns and offers free life to all who will believe, forgiveness of sins and times of refreshing. Oh Lord, we pray that this would be so in our midst, God. We pray that you would be so real to us that these would not just be historical words, though they are history, but they would be living and active and breathing words in our midst, Lord. So as we look at this text today, open our eyes to see Jesus. God, God, would you pour out your spirit upon us that this wouldn't just be a lecture or a nice talk but that your very presence would speak to hearts in this room. Lord, we don't want to just gather some more information. We want to encounter you. And so we ask that you would, by your grace, meet us, 
Convict us, encourage us, change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here the last couple of weeks when we went through chapter 2, you'll, you'll recognize kind of a similar pattern in what happens in chapter 2 and what happens in chapter 3. Uh, in both chapters, there's a miracle. In chapter 2, it's the pouring out of the Spirit. It's this uh, speaking in tongues. In chapter 3, it's the healing of a lame man. But in both cases, there is a miracle, and then there is a gathering of astounded people. And then Peter takes the moment to take the gathering of astounded people and explain to them what just happened in the miracle, and then to explain to them Jesus. And in both cases, he says some very similar things. He, he tells the people that they have rejected God's Son, and then he offers forgiveness in Christ to them, and then there is a response. Now, there is a difference. In the first time, 3,000 I mean, get saved, and the church comes together, and it's wonderful. And the second time, uh, the speakers get arrested. So there's a little bit of a difference in the response in the two passages, um, but people believe in the second time as well. But there is a similar pattern. Well, here's the miracle that takes place in chapter 3. It, uh, Luke tells us that Peter and John <coughs> go up to the temple for the hour of prayer. Verse 1 says it's the ninth hour, which is 3 in the afternoon. So they go to the temple at 3 in the afternoon. This is the time that they would have just offered what was called the evening, it sounds like afternoon, but what would have been called the evening sacrifice. So there was a sacrifice offered, and then there was a time of prayer. And last chapter, chapter 2, told us that they would gather daily. The apostles gathered daily in the temple courts with the people. So presumably they go up to pray, and they also meet with the various Christians, the followers of Jesus that are there. Perhaps they teach them and pray. That could be when they do that at this time of the day. And so as they are walking into this temple, uh, the temple, to worship, they encounter a man who it says uh, lay daily, verse 2, at the gate of the temple that is called beautiful, the beautiful gate uh, to ask alms for those, from those entering the temple. So this guy was carried. He was unable to walk on his own, and so he was lame from birth, the passage tells us. Chapter 4 is going to tell us that he's 40 years old. So this guy has not walked in his 40 years of living, and every day some friends or family or whomever would carry him so that he could sit outside of this particular gate at the temple and ask for money. Uh, That's what alms were, gifts to the poor. And the rabbis of the day commended caring for the poor. They commended the giving of alms. So this is the perfect place for a guy in his position to be. I mean, if people are ever going to be soft of heart and generous of spirit, it is likely when they are going into church or coming out of church, as the case may be, when they're going to the prayer meeting or coming out of the prayer meeting, where they're going after the sacrifice has been offered, aware that their sins are forgiven, uh, this is a time when they would probably be more likely to give to this man. And so he is at this prime spot for asking of alms. It's called the beautiful gate. There's debate on where this beautiful gate was or what, what it was, but most commentators believe that it was one of several gates, a number of gates, that separated the court of Gentiles from the court of Israel, uh, where you had to be an Israelite to go through these particular gates. There was an open area that Gentiles could go to, but to get into the actual um, court of the Israelites, you would have to enter one of these gates. And so that's pretty much where he was as people were coming in. So as he was coming in, he's asking for alms. So he's probably saying, and he's probably not making a lot of eye contact with people. Uh, just probably help. Any, any extra, can you spare any change? Any money? Can you help me out? And verse 4 says, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said to him, look at us. Perhaps he was looking down out of shame or, or fatigue. He's just kind of giving the same mantra over and over, asking for money. Maybe he had a sign like modern day beggars do. I don't know. But, but he... Peter wants to get his attention, and he says, look at us. And so he looks up at Peter and John, verse 5, they fixed his attention upon them, and he fixed his attention expecting to receive something. I mean, if you're saying, look at me, he's probably expecting that he's going to receive a, a gift of some sort. And so what Peter and John do is they say, Peter rather speaks for the two of them, and says, I don't have any silver and gold. I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have, that I give you. 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Amazing. That's what he says. I, I, I give you what I have, which is the power of Jesus, the name of Jesus, and I tell you to rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles became strong. So he lifts this guy up, and immediately feet which have never been stood upon and ankles which have never supported his body weight, they instantly are healed. Now this is, we, we can read over this and say, well, that's a nice story, but I mean, it helps to think about what it would be like to be this guy. Sometimes it's helpful to put ourselves in his place, to think that for 40 years you were unable to care for yourself. 40 years immobilized. Now certainly he could do some things for himself, but he couldn't get from one spot to another. He had to be carried to get to this spot. To get anywhere, he had to have someone move him carry him along. And so you can imagine what this guy's life is like. While other people are working, while other people are giving themselves to their calling in life, this guy is sitting and asking for money to be given to him so that he can survive. This is a matter of survival for a beggar. And you can imagine the discouragement that would come with that. The questions, I mean, he's, he's been lame from birth. He's born with this, uh, this physical limitation, this disability of sorts. What kind of questions does this guy have about God? God, why did you do this to me? Why am I not like everyone else? Imagine what that would be like, the, the embarrassment and the shame that he would have, that he daily has to humble himself to just have other people give to him to survive. He is dependent upon the compassion and the generosity of other people. And he's there daily. So this guy's a fixture at the gate. Everybody walks by. Oh, there's the beggar. There's the lame man. There's the guy asking for money again. Do people avoid eye contact? Do people go around the other way? Do people pick another gate knowing that he's going to be there as he has his cup or his basket or, what, or his hand, whatever? He's just reaching out for and so this guy who lives this, this sad existence, this, this existence that is determined by his limitations, his identity is lame beggar, that's what he's known as. And so this guy encounters Christ through the disciples. They pick him up and he starts walking. <clears throat> Verse 8, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple. He goes into the temple with them. He is walking and leaping and praising God. And if you're a Sunday school kid, you have a song going off in your head right now that goes with that. And if you don't know it, Pete will teach it out in the lobby at the break. Um, But there's a Sunday school song that goes along with that, walking and leaping and praising God. And so he is, he's jumping. I mean, this guy is leaping around in the temple. This guy is not quiet I mean, can you imagine? All of a sudden, I can walk. This is amazing. He's running. He's jumping. He's praising. I don't think he's whispering praises. I don't think he is moderate in his tone. I don't think he's casual and sort of intellectually detached. I think he is jumping up and down and yelling. I can walk. It's a miracle. And he's he's making some kind of commotion such that he draws attention to himself. Because it says they, verse 10, recognized him as the one who sat at the gate asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. There's a crowd, and they're blown away. How is this guy walking around? How is this guy jumping? Why is he leaping in the temple and making a lot of noise? And they're filled with wonder and amazement. Because what has taken place is impossible. It's impossible that a guy can just stand up and start walking. And so this is a spectacle. And they want to know what happens. They want to know why this happened. They want to know how this happened. Verse 11, while the man clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This was an area with a couple of... um, uh, it's a kind of a colonnade, an area that had to have a couple of rows of columns and so uh, with a roof over it. So they're kind of in this area, uh, like maybe a, you might view it as like a super wide gathering hallway kind of thing. So they're gathered in this colonnade, and Peter takes the opportunity to address 
the people and explain to them what has happened. Now, we've already been told that this sort of thing's going to happen. In Acts 1.1, the very beginning of the book, we learn that in the previous book, which is Luke, that uh, Luke began, he has dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the, the implication is that Acts is all that Jesus continues to do and teach. This is the kind of stuff Jesus did was heal people. So we know that. Secondly, we know that this was typical of what the apostles did at this time. Verse 43 of chapter 2. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So we're getting a window. Here's one, this is what it was like. This is the kind of stuff they did by God's power. And so we see that this is not a surprise that this sort of thing would happen, because Jesus is still acting and teaching and doing in the church and the apostles are being used by him to do these various miracles. So this is a, a sign that points ultimately to Jesus. Um, before we look at what he has to say about it, though, I, I do want to make a point here that I think is very important when we read these kind of passages. This is a wonder. Uh, this is a sign. This is something that is used to reveal who Jesus is. This is something that attests to the authority of the apostles. This is something that authenticates the apostles. But there are some who say that's all these miracles, and they they may not say quite like this, but the impression is that that's all the miracle accomplishes, is the authentication of the apostles. And so once the apostles are gone, there's no more miracles that happen anymore, that that was for the age of the apostles to simply validate them and validate their ministry. But, you know, when I read this sort of thing, and I read this guy leaping around, I just got to wonder, is there more to it than that? I believe this authenticates the ministry of the apostles. I believe this reveals the power of Jesus. But doesn't it do more than that? I mean, doesn't the miracle not just represent the power of Jesus or the authenticity of the apostles? Doesn't it reveal the love of Jesus? and all that he continues to do. When Jesus was on the earth, he healed people because he was moved by his compassion for people. Clearly what he did was called a sign, revealing he was sent from the Father. But he also did these things moved by compassion. What I'm trying to say is, doesn't this guy matter? Isn't God focusing his love on this guy? Isn't the Holy Spirit going after an outcast and entering into his embarrassment and his shame and his poverty and his suffering and his weakness and saying, get up, the power of God is here to heal you. Doesn't God care about this guy? Isn't this more than a setup to draw a crowd so that we can hear the gospel? Isn't this more than, oh, Peter's the real deal because God used him? This is the mercy and the compassion of God who reaches down and changes a man's life forever. Jesus is giving new life to this guy. And and, and Isaiah prophesied that when the Savior came, this sort of thing would happen. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah says, "When, when, when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is prophesied that a lame man or lame men would leap like a deer, and that's exactly what he does. So yes, this attests the apostles. Yes, this opens a door for the preaching of the gospel. But yes, this is a revelation of the compassion of God to care for this man in his suffering and healing. He's not just an object lesson. He's a man who God deeply loves and cares for, and that's important. And in my mind, that opens the door for us praying similarly today because God still cares about people. He's not authenticating any apostles today. They've been authenticated, and we have their word right here. But he is touching people by his love and by his mercy. It's a great miracle, isn't it? But what transitions next is a greater miracle. There's a great miracle, but there's a greater miracle, and that's the good news of Jesus, which Peter is going to focus everyone's attention on. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. When he saw what? All these people, it says, they ran together utterly amazed. So he sees a gasping crowd 
jaws dropped, looking for an explanation. What happened here? And so what he says, verse 12, when he saw it, he addressed them. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? (laughs) That is a great question. There's a lot of questions like that. When Jesus sends the angel said, why are you looking up in the sky? Because oh, I've never seen it before. This men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Because the guy's walking around, but that probably wouldn't be a good point to point that out to Peter there. It wouldn't have been a good moment to say that, but it is a wonder. Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And then he's going to talk about his servant Jesus. So what does he do? He takes the moment and he points to Jesus. Matter of fact, he deliberately points away from himself so nobody's confused. This, This is the way sermons should be today as well. We should be looking for sermons where the preacher, the teacher, is not drawing attention to himself but he is drawing attention to Jesus. He's not drawing attention to his, his preferences or his style. He's drawing attention to Jesus. As you go through the book of Acts, as we do this and we read sermon after sermon, we're going to see they're all focused on Christ. That's what preaching is about. It's about proclaiming. It's announcing good news. Not the good news of the guy announcing it, but the good news that he's been sent to tell from the Scripture, Jesus. So all the, all the, all the passages tend to Focus on Jesus when we see preaching in the New Testament. So that's, a, that, that's something that we uh, want to consider even as we consider the role of preaching in the church. So he draws attention away from himself. He says, um, don't stare at me, don't stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk. What's he saying? We don't have the power to do this. This is something God did. Secondly, we don't have the piety. We're not, it's not our holiness that accomplished this. If it's based on our holiness, this guy's still lame because we cannot heal him. So it's not based on our power. It's not based on our secret power. It's not based on our holiness. And that's true in the church today. Nothing gets accomplished because of the power of a person or because of the holiness of a person. Now, we want to aim for holiness, and leaders are required, actually, to uh, have certain character qualities in their life that reflect the holiness of God, as we see in 1 Timothy and Titus. But having said that, things aren't happening, glorious things aren't happening in the church because we have powerful leaders or because we have super holy leaders. They're happening because Jesus is powerful, and Jesus is holy, and Jesus is continuing to do and teach. That's why it's happening. Hey, this isn't about me. I can't make the guy stand up. And by the way, he's about to preach the gospel, and people are going to respond. He can't save anybody either. That is done by the power of Christ, and that is done by the holiness of Christ as well. So he's not elevating leaders very clearly. He's saying, He's going back to the beginning, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hey, this all goes back to the beginning when God first formed a people for himself, and now he's raised up his servant, Jesus. So he gets to Jesus really quickly. He gets off personal pietism and personal power, and he gets to Jesus really quickly like in a verse. In a verse, he is to Jesus. He raised up his servant, Jesus, so he points out Christ, and then he's going to immediately begin to address, well, address their sin, address their rejection of the Savior. He speaks this three times in verses 13 and 14. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, first of all, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You delivered Jesus over to the Roman authorities, to Pilate, the judge, and you denied Jesus when he had decided Pilate was going to wash his hands, Pilate was going to let Jesus go. He didn't want to make, he didn't find anything wrong in this man to charge him for. But you stayed at it, is what he tells the crowd. You guys were yelling, crucify, opposing Jesus. And so he just points that out to them that even, even the Roman authority wasn't let him go, but you, you denied him. You delivered him and denied him. Secondly, next thing he says is, uh, but you denied the holy. You denied the holy and righteous one, which is language coming from Isaiah, the righteous one, which speaks of the, the Messiah, the servant. So you denied him, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You didn't want Jesus set free. You asked for Barabbas. So rather than having God 
you chose an insurrectionist, a murderer, and you wanted him set free. So he raises that with him. You, third thing, you killed the author of life. How's that for irony? You, the one who gave life, the one who orchestrated life, the one who gave you the breath in your lungs, the one who sustained your heartbeat and sustains your heartbeat, the one who gave you a voice, you used that voice to kill the author of your life. The one who gives life, you rejected him. And and this applies to all of us. None of us were there at that time. But any rejection of God is the same thing. It's It's a denial of the author of life. And so that's what he says. You denied the author of life who, by the way, he says, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. So he says, the author of life is alive. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So he says next, so that you've rejected him, but here's, he's the one who's acted today. Verse 16, in his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. So Jesus has worked in this man. You rejected him, but it's that Jesus who is now, by faith in his name, in his authority, he has healed this man. They said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he's saying, that's where the power is. Now, we're going to see in the book of Acts that using the name of Jesus is not a magical incantation. This is not magic. Matter of fact, I think it's in chapter 8, a guy, is, is, uh, um, uh, a guy tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit and says, you can't do that. I'm told that you can't do that. So it's not just a name. Like, you use the name, and when you use the name and claim something, it's going to happen. Like, it's, that, that's magic. That's pagan. Matter of fact, there's a great story. I can't wait to get to it in chapter 19, where these guys named the seven sons of Siva, which is a great name for a band. I read that this week. I said, <laughs> if you're going to be in a band with sons, would you rather be Mumford and Sons or would you rather be in the seven sons of Siva? That is a much better name. So that, that's a good band name. So seven sons of Siva. And uh, they go and they're trying to cast out demons And they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I tell you to come out to the demon. The demon says, well, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, which means he didn't know any of us. If he only recognizes Paul, I think we're pretty much under the radar. But uh, I know Jesus, I recognize Paul, but who are you? That's what the demon says. And then the guy jumps up on the seven sons of Siva, and it says it beat them up, and they ran outside naked and bleeding, ripped their clothes off, ripped them to shreds. They go running outside. What's the lesson? Well, Jesus' name isn't a magical formula that just anybody can use. It didn't go well with those guys. They didn't know him. They were just tossing it out. They were trying to do their exorcism deal, and the demons got the, demons got the, uh, got the, the winning um, got the winning punch in. So the point is not here that you just use his name, verse 16, by his name. It's by faith in his name. See, his name represents all that he is. The name of Jesus represents his rule, his authority, the name of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus the Messiah. And that's what Peter said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, the one who has come, the ruling and reigning one. In his name. And so his name represents his presence. It represents his power. And faith that is through Jesus has given this man. Jesus even gives that faith. It's not as if you have enough faith. So it's not just use the name, and it's not just work up your faith. It is in his authority, in his presence, in his name, we trust him, and even he gives that. And then the man was healed. Actually, he was given perfect health, is what he says in that situation. It's it's glorious. So after Peter talks about this, Um, he then preaches more of the gospel to them and tells them what should they do. They've rejected Jesus, same thing he said in chapter 2, but look at what Jesus has done, so here's what you should do. Does it mean it's over for you? Is this a message of condemnation? Absolutely not. It's sharp, three times he tells how they rejected, but then he comes back with mercy and grace in response to that. Verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Jesus suffered, he died, and he's already died. He's already resurrected as well. We read that earlier. The author of life has been brought back to life. Verse 19, repent 
therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Now he says three things here. You've rejected Christ, but Jesus suffered for that rejection, suffered for your sins, and so now here's three things that'll happen if you repent. Repent means to turn. If you turn to Jesus and believe in him, here's three things that will happen. First of all, your sins will be blotted out. Wow. What that means is it's like wiping a slate clean. It's like to be blotted out means to be wiped away is what it, what it literally means. It goes from the way that they would write on papyrus with their ink. And if you wanted to erase it, um, you, would, you would blot the wet ink on the papyrus, which didn't sink in. Uh, like our ink does typically, and you could blot it out and then it would be gone. So perhaps a modern day metaphor would be, it's like a whiteboard and it'll all be wiped away. Oh, you can turn. You've rejected him. You asked for a murderer, the very God that gave you life. You turned your back on him and killed him. But guess what? If you turn back to him and you believe, he'll, he'll blot out all your sins. He'll wipe every sin away. That is a glorious promise that he gives to them. You get a clean slate. You get a fresh start. And he makes the same promise today. It's not changed. If you're here today and you've never met Christ, there is this great promise that we're reading right here, that if you turn to him, he will blot your sins. He'll wipe them away. He'll forgive everything you've done. And he'll give you a fresh start. He'll give you a new life. Secondly, what does he say if you turn to Christ? He'll blot your sins away, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Wow, we'd be hard-pressed to find a more encouraging verse in the Bible, huh? That to repent and turn to Christ is to have your sins forgiven and to have times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. This is very much what he said in chapter 2, wasn't it? In chapter 2, what he said to them, if you look back, Chapter 2, verse 38, he said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's blot your sins out. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's times of refreshing. from the pro- What's the presence of the Lord? The Holy Spirit. So he's saying the same thing here, really, in making this kind of promise. Times of refreshing. That's what he promises to them. The word refreshing can mean relief or rest. It is relief from an obligation or relief from trouble. See, we all have a natural obligation. We're we're naturally under our sins before God. And when we turn to him and believe, they're blotted out and we're relieved. They're blotted out and we're refreshed. Let me point out something that's highly misunderstood here. Some people say, oh, you talk about repentance, that's a focus on sin. We don't need to focus on sin too much. You talk all this talk of repentance, even for Christians. Repentance is a focus on sin. It's just the opposite. Repentance is a turning away from my sin, a turning to Jesus who has blotted out my sin, and a turning to the Holy Spirit for times of refreshing. That's what repentance is about. Repentance is not about searching out your sins. Repentance is not about focusing on your sins. Repentance is not, as, as David Pallas and the biblical counselor says, it's not an idol hunt. It's not an endless introspective evaluation of my failures. They're pretty brief and they're pretty stark. Conviction is quick, brief, and, and stark. You killed Jesus. Okay, they, all right. They, they right now, they're convicted. This is just the Holy Spirit revealed to them their need and they turn to him and they believe in him. Repentance is a turning, and the focus of repentance is not where you were, but it's where you're going. It's not what you were holding on to, but it's what you're giving up and holding on to Jesus. It is times of refreshing. You don't get times of refreshing without the step of repentance. The times of refreshing is tied to turning away from sin, not lingering and meditating and beating myself up over it. The times of refreshing are turning to Jesus and realizing that he has forgiven all my sins. If you've never become a Christian, you do that initially for the first time. You turn in belief to Jesus and you experience times of refreshing because your burden, the burden of trying to do enough good to please God is wiped away. The burden of having done enough wrong to be condemned is wiped away. You give up your burden and you get rest, relief, rejuvenation, 
refreshment. That's what happens when we turn to Christ. There is a newness and forgiveness that restores and refreshes our souls. There is a freedom in forgiveness. And when you first become a Christian, you know that freedom. And after you've been a Christian for a while, you still, I still can know that freedom. There's still times of refreshing is not just for the new believer. It's for the seasoned believer as well. It is, it is hope, it is life, it is freedom, and it comes from focusing on Jesus and being open to the presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. John Stott one time said that in England, a director of a large mental institution said this to him, I could send half of my patients in the mental institution. I could send half of my patients home tomorrow if only they could find forgiveness. If only they could find forgiveness. I'm not being simplistic here and saying, just believe in forgiveness and all your problems will go away. I'm not saying that. But I am saying the power of the gospel and the message of the gospel will free us from everything that holds us and enslaves us. I am saying that. That is the good news. It's not as if awareness of forgiveness is a solution to every problem. Just remember remember you're forgiven and you'll never be lonely again. No, not saying that. But I am saying that it is turning to Christ, turning my mind and my heart to him, and being aware of what he has done for me in his death and in his life, and depending upon him, looking at him, aware of his glory and his grace and his mercy as taught me in his word, and opening my heart and mind to his Holy Spirit, asking for times of refreshing. It's a, it's a regular exchanging my burden for his. That's what Jesus said. That, that come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. It's the same thing. Jesus said, if you're weary, come to me. I'll provide rest for your souls. We'll trade your burden, what you're carrying, all your good works, or all that you're, what you're trying to do to be accepted by God, all your failures which you're looking at and are weighing you down, let's give all those burdens of your good works and your bad works, which both are burdensome. If you're looking for your good works to commend you to the Father, they're burdensome. So give them all to me and let's trade. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is his burden light? Because he's blotted out all our sins and because we receive times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Oh, it's a good word here for, for all of us. Christ has declared us not guilty. Christ has welcomed us to a throne of grace. In Jesus, we are loved. Listen, you will never be more loved by the Heavenly Father than you are right now. And there is nothing that you can do to draw God's love to you more. You can't make God love you more. You can't do something good to get his attention and his favor You have his favor in Jesus. You have his love in Jesus. We are united in Christ. God the Father loves you as much as he loves his own son. Because we are in Christ. And there's refreshing when we see the Father heart of God reconciling us to himself in Jesus. It's refreshing when we think about his presence living in us, his word teaching us and our turning to him to receive great relief and great refreshment in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is really the answer in our times of difficulty, in our times of emptiness, in our times of weariness. And we all get them, by the way. Sometimes there's a surprise when, oh man, I don't feel refreshed. Okay, read the Psalms. A high percentage of the Psalms are people saying, God, where are you? Do you care? I mean, that's very, very common in the Psalms. So sometimes we're shocked if there's a dry moment in our lives. And yet the Bible says that's a very real experience. But into that experience, I mean, that's not a lifetime experience. Into that experience come times of refreshing as the Lord works the gospel deeply into our heart and refreshes us. I want to pray. I'm going to wrap up here pretty quick because I'd like to pray for folks along those lines this morning. Well, what does, he, what does he say next? He says, come to the Lord. Um, you know, if your sin's blotted out, times of refreshing, 
He'll send Christ appointed for you. And that's talking about, you can read those verses, 21, 22, talking about the return of Christ. So he's going to come and restore all things. He'll forgive your sins today. He'll refresh you today. And he's coming back to restore all things in the future. So he says that. Um, and, and then he gives them a negative warning. He says, repent because these three glorious things happen, but repent also because verse 23, every soul who does not listen to that prophet, speaking of Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. So he gives a warning. You've rejected Christ. If you continue to reject him and don't listen to him, you'll be rejected, is what he's saying. So there's that reason. And uh, then he closes with talking about how this God has given this great blessing of repentance. Verse 26, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now that's a turn of phrase that we don't usually use. God wants to bless you by turning you from wickedness. We tend to think that there's an allurement to wickedness. There's something good in wickedness. The Bible says you want to be blessed, turn from that and turn to the Lord. And that's what he's doing. He's turning you from that and to himself. Well, how do we apply this passage and we're going to pray? Well, I think we've already made some application, but I think one big point here is the gospel is always the same, but the results of gospel ministry vary. On Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. If you'll notice, as we read in verse 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, and then they arrest them. They don't, he didn't even get to the final point of the sermon. We, we don't know how he closed. He made this statement about blessing, and then it was interrupted. There was no prayer time. The band didn't play. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Uh, we didn't have any of that. We didn't get to the conclusion of the sermon. It is, you're getting arrested. We don't like what you're saying. You're, but we're taking you to jail. So in the first time, 3,000 people are saved. They're all baptized out, presumably in the pools at Pentecost, the, the ritually cleansing pools. They're all baptized out in public. It's glorious. It's wonderful. And then we get those five verses about what life in the early church was like. Well, this is life in the early church too. They're getting arrested. They're getting opposition. So many people did believe. It says they were up to 5,000 men at that point. So I don't know what the real number is if you added women and children. I don't know, 15,000 Christians at that point, 20. I don't know what the average rate of people was, family, size of family. But they don't even get it finished. But many still believe. See, we can't judge what God is doing based on anyone's response. We are called to be faithful and he determines fruitfulness. And what we find in the book of Acts over and over is it's typical to see joy and conversion and times of refreshing and persecution at the same time. It's the message of Acts, the life of the early church, the life of the church is that there is joy and there is opposition all at the same time. All at the same time. And so that's a sign that, that of that, that's how that's how the when the spirit is working there is hardness of heart for those who don't believe and there is life for those who do believe. And so we see that in the book of Acts on and on and on. So you can't really judge the truth of a message or the truth of an activity just by response because there's varying responses in the book of Acts and the truth is being preached. So the gospel is the same, but the results may vary. So we preach the gospel, we love, we pray, we serve, we tell this good news to people, and we trust the Lord with the results. Secondly, we, I think when I read this passage, I think we should expect God to act. I read this passage, and it stirs faith in my heart to expect God to act. When I read the account of the lame beggar healed, I, I find no arguments in that text of why God couldn't do that today. Why couldn't? Why couldn't God do that today? Why in the world would God not be able to do that once we have the Bible? Once we have the Bible, then we don't need that. Are there not still sick people? Are there not people beyond medical help still around? Is God not still compassionate? Now, God is sovereign, and he may do that in, in much more frequently in apostolic times or in times where the gospel is breaking into an area for the first time, missionary frontier environments, it seems that this happens more commonly. But God is sovereign. I can't explain why he does something one time and the other. But I don't see any reason that we shouldn't pray and we shouldn't ask God to do big things. 
Matter of fact, I think when something is humanly impossible, we should be asking God to intervene and act according to his will, not telling him what to do, not naming it and claiming it, not forcing him, not working up enough faith so that he has to do what we ask, but simply asking him to invade the impossible with his power. I think we should do that. I think we should pray for big miracles like in this text. I think we should believe God to heal people, to deliver people, to provide for people, to change circumstances. And so I want to ask you, what are you praying about today that only God can do? What are you praying? Nobody can help this guy. There's not a shot or a pill or a treatment. Nobody can help this guy. So what are we praying about today that if it happens, the only explanation is that God did it. If this guy walks, there's one explanation, God did it. So what are we praying for? What are you praying for that only God can do? And we should trust God with the greater miracle as well, because there's a greater miracle in this passage, and that's that people believe the message of the gospel. When the healing, the healing miracle caught their attention, but the healing miracle didn't save them. The healing miracle wasn't the focus. Peter told them about Jesus and called them to turn to Christ and said, God is turning people from their wickedness to himself, and that's a blessing. The greater miracle is people got their sins forgiven that day. The greater miracle is not just that the guy walked. That's glorious. Let's pray for that. But the greater miracle is that people had their souls refreshed by the presence of the Lord. That's the greater miracle, is that a sinner got their sins forgiven. Is that a person who felt distant from God, felt close to God by the presence of the Spirit. The person who was far away came near. The person who was in darkness walked into the light because Christ opened their eyes. The person that was dead came to life spiritually. That's the greater miracle. We don't have to pray for one or the other. We can pray for both, but let's expect God to do the greater miracle, and let's expect God to refresh and to forgive, even for Christians, not just for the unbeliever, but for Christians as well. We want to experience and celebrate and know and live in the forgiveness of God. And we want times of refreshing. The gospel applied to our hearts refreshes. The gospel restores. I mean, some would say a refreshed soul. Some who suffer would say, I'll take a refreshed soul over a healed body. Let's pray for both. But the refreshed soul makes all the difference. God restores, he frees, he unburdens our souls. He relieves the weight of the obligation. Regardless of circumstances, even when he doesn't turn circumstances, he will frequently refresh the heart. So let's pray for both and ask for both. He is still continuing to do and teach. That's what this passage says. He is saving. If you don't know Christ, turn to him today and receive these glorious benefits. And on top of them, eternal life. Receive. Come believing. Believe. I mean, is this not what you want? A refreshed soul, an eternal life, an unburdened conscience. You find that one place, and that is in Jesus. So you come and believe today. And if you're burdened and you're weary and you're dry as a Christian, come believing, expecting, asking for times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.